Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to read the passage uh, for today. And um, this is from, um, from Acts 25. If you're new, the, we have been doing this for a while now. Some churches do this, stand and read the word, and others don't. It's, pres- it's described in the Bible, but not prescribed by the Bible. We just started doing it a little over a year ago because we feel like, um, you know, especially now. And the, and the message is that I've titled it, um, Speaking Truth to Power in an, in an Age when power is defined by tr- or truth, Where Power Defines Truth. Uh, but um, truth is something that God's given us and not something that we have to figure out on our own. We've got to figure out what God said, but um, he's given it to us. And so we stand as acknowledging that these words are from the Lord, uh, that we're grateful for him, that they, we're honoring um, his word, and, and that these are the most important words that will be said all day. So it's a little bit long. Bear with me. And I have a tiny bit of commentary um, for these passages. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he'd done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him to the emperor. But... I have nothing definite to write to my lord the emperor about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is commentary. Paul, at that point, has to be thinking, what am I doing here? Like, no one has any idea what they're doing, right? Because it seems pretty self-evident that you shouldn't send somebody into a trial when you don't have any charges. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I'm going to skip his defense. I'm going to talk a bit about that in the sermon. But his defense is basically, um, you know, I used to persecute Christians. And then Jesus met me on the road to Damascus, changed my whole life. He's risen from the dead. I saw him. And he needs to change your life too and preaches the gospel. At the end of it, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not a disobedient to the heavenly vision on the road to Damascus, but declared first to those in Damascus, <clears throat> then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, because I was declaring that, the Jews seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Here's the gospel. That the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Uh, I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
This is also a little interlude. I don't know if this got in there. Did this, do you remember this meme, like your GIF, GIF or whatever, the rap battle? This is what's happening all around that room as Paul confronts the king of, of Israel, the Jewish people, and says, I know you believe it. Don't you believe in Jesus? Everybody's like, did he just do that? And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And he's in change, except for these chains. And with that, Paul like drops the mic. <laughs> Just an unbelievable passage. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. All right, you guys can have a seat. So I have titled this message, Speaking Truth to Power in an Era When Power Defines Truth. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, Paul, in, throughout this, these last chapters of Acts, is speaking to elevating levels of power. So picking up from last week, Paul... You know, on the road to Damascus, he got converted, became a Christian, and then God, it was a time of discipleship, and then he sent him out, and he went to Asia and to Greece and planted all these churches, and then God said, you need to go back to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit said, this is not going to go well, but you need to do it anyway. Like, you know, from a human standpoint, it's not going to go well, and that was last week's message um, that, you know, following Jesus is going to be difficult, you should do it anyway, and, and worship is the key to that. And so he ends up in Jerusalem, and sure enough, they arrest him in the temple on some trumped-up charges. He goes in Jerusalem before what's called a tribune, which is the royal official, like, kind of like the, ro the, or the Roman, sorry, the Roman, like, mayor in Jerusalem. So it's a local um, Roman official. And then they take him to uh, Caesarea, which is where the provincial or the regional Roman authority was. That's where he was last week, too. And so that's the governor, Felix. Felix um, listens to him, doesn't know what to do with him. So he kicks the can down the road for two years. He just holds on to Paul there, um, in part hoping that Paul would bribe him, <laughs> that he can get something out of it. And then Festus takes over for Felix. And then Felix is like, well, this is your problem now. Good luck. And so Festus tries to figure out what to do with it and listens to some Jewish folks talk about their problems with Paul, and he doesn't know what to do with it, so he calls in King Agrippa, and so Festus is the Roman like governor over that whole area, and Agrippa is the Jewish, the Roman-appointed Jewish king over that area, so they kind of share authority, but Festus is probably the one that really has the authority, but Agrippa is, a, is Jewish. So Festus calls him in and, and says, hey, I think this is some dispute about Jewish stuff, and you know more about that than I do, and so can you listen to him? And so this scene is Paul before Agrippa and Festus and all these other important people in Caesarea by the sea, which is a big town in Israel at the time. And the next step is he's going to travel to Rome to be, full, be, be before the Caesar. And so there, there's, there's a lot to learn from how he handles you know, this situation in general, but this specific scene. I'm reading this book um, called an un, an, an un, A Non-Anxious Presence. And so it's written by a pastor in Australia, and he's really talking about like the changes that are happening in our culture right now that he'd probably say like as we go it to a, into like a, the digital age from the industrial age or something like that. But, but talking about how, um, how the church responds to that and the need to be a non-anxious um, presence. And I, I really like it. A couple years ago, um, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, and they started one and three, and Packer Nation freaked out. And Aaron Rodgers went on a, like a radio show with a local host, and at the end of it, they're one and three, and the radio host said, you got anything to say to the fans right now? He's like, yeah, I do. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. And we were like, 
don't you tell us to relax like you start playing football, you know? But he's like, just calm down. This is going to be okay. And I feel like that's kind of what this guy is saying, that like we're in a, he calls it a gray zone. We're like, there was a time when it seems like we, we got it. Everything was kind of settled. Um, we're on the same page, but we're transitioning. It's a huge transition. He tries to like play out what that looks like. And so we're in between a time when things are settled and a time when things are kind of settled. And in that gray zone, everything's kind of up in the air. Um, and so he talks about how we, we've been in a period where um, we trusted institutions and they kind of mediated reality and mediated truth for us and we trusted that. So, you know, 50, 75 years ago, people trusted the government and Watergate was probably the, you know, the big trigger in us not trusting the government anymore. And we trusted the media. Everybody listened to Walter Cronkite and like everybody, we trusted the media. Now, does anybody trust the media? Like you look at the, nobody trusts the media and we trusted the church. And the, the church, the, the truth or the trust in the church has eroded over years. And so those institutions kind of mediated reality for culture. And you had four channels on your TV, and so that's just all you got, you know? Now you've got what, I don't know if I used this line last night, but they got, or last night, um, last week. Sorry, I have a little bit of a sinus infection. I don't think I've gotten a good night's sleep in five, five um, weeks, days. So uh, just bear with me. But, but the one author said, he said, our kids have never been bored because we all have infinity in our front right pocket. And we do. We have like, this is a rabbit hole that just goes down forever, you know, and all sorts of voices come out of it. And so he said we're going in from an institutional, institutions mediate truth to kind of a networked age where we have all these voices um, trying to, to tell us what to do, and it's, and it's creating a huge amount of anxiety in our culture. He starts the book going back like 150 years, and he says there was an invention that just shook people up. And he quotes magazine articles and doctors and books about the, the low-level anxiety that people were feeling because of this invention, because it connected us to the world, and because we were more connected to what was going on overseas. There were more opportunities, but there were greater expectations. We just don't know how to manage it. You know what the invention was? The telegraph. The telegraph freaks people out, y'all. Like sissies, what would they do with this thing um, if they had it now? And he said that may be the beginning of what we have now, and so we're in this gray zone, and the church is in a gray zone because we used to have power in culture, and people used to trust the church, and, and in our culture, people used to, like, people used to be on the same page. But now there's, there's not only do we not have it, there's a backlash against uh, from some parts of culture, the way that the church used that power because people felt repressed by the church in the way it held that power. Um, and in some ways, I don't disagree with that. I say this a bit, too, that, you know, the beginning of the story, God puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and tells Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat from that. Or, you know, things are going to go, like, it'll lead to death. Things are going to go badly if you do. But he didn't put a fence around it. You know, he didn't put it outside the garden and say you have to, like, you know, do an obstacle course to get to it. He put it right there for them. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, he, there, are, there are angels with flaming swords in the garden, but they guard Adam and Eve from getting back in the garden after he kicked them out. But those, he didn't put those angels around the tree so that they wouldn't eat from it. He let them do it. And in a way, the church, for years... Um, in some ways, you know, used guilt and shame to keep people from eating from the tree and, and doing the thing that the church thought they shouldn't do. And now those people are like, now we have the power. 
And at the margins of that, like, want to make Christians pay for that time period. I don't know if that makes sense. I'd love to talk to you about it because it makes a ton of sense to me. Um, it, but now those people on the margins of culture are becoming what they hate. And now they're like, don't you dare question us. And they're using guilt and shame to manipulate people into, like, conforming, you know, to what probably has become the dominant cultural narratives. It's ironic how things have flipped around. But we're in this gray zone, gray zone because now we don't have power Um, But we still have the mandate to profess the gospel. And it's a radically different call to profess the gospel from a position of cultural power than to profess the gospel from the margins. And Paul is in the margins. The early church was in the margins. And so he has no power in this scene. And I think there's a bit to learn from it. So this is here are five things that I think we can learn from it. Here's the first one. Expect to be falsely accused. So there's a trial in Jerusalem and there were two, maybe there were two in Jerusalem and two in, and one in Caesarea, one in Jerusalem and two in Caesarea. But the first one, um, this, this was the accusation. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place, which is the temple. Everyone, he's teaching everyone, everywhere. If you're married, what, what two words did they tell you never to use in an argument? Always and never. Never use always and never. Because what happens? You always do that. Well, I didn't do that like four years ago one time in this one situation. And so you're obviously wrong about what you're saying. So I don't have to listen to anything anymore. You do that, right? Like in the heat of it, liars. And you do that. And, and so don't use always or never. And this is everywhere, everyone, everything. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place because they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. (laughs) Be careful about your assumptions. This is also good marriage counseling, right? Don't assume stuff. Um, But that's what they did. Next one, we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the whole world. Come on. Uh, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's who the Christians are. They are a sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And then, last one, when he'd arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. <laughs> so he's charged with stuff, but there's no evidence. And Paul argued his defense and said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor the temple, nor Caesar have I committed any crimes, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Like it really didn't have anything to do about finding the truth. Festus is a politician. It had to do with what he could get out of it. He says, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem to be tried on the charges um, before me? This is some mob justice, right? He's back from being in Asia and in Greece, and he's in Jerusalem among the Jewish people. They don't like what he's been, do- he's been doing, so they're canceling him. Uh, he's spreading the gospel. The church is growing, and it's a threat to the power of the Jewish leaders and, and to all that they think is right, and so they are canceling him. If you're following Jesus, what do you think, like, in, just in our cultural moment, you are falsely accused of? Those are the ones that came to my mind. Hate um, being the big one. Yeah, intolerance, bigotry. And so I'll say this. Um, 
part of the reason I like this non-anxious presence book is because I'm a, one of my favorite sayings is there's three sides to every story, my side, your side, and the truth. You know, I'm, big, I'm big on that. Uh, my responses are probably a lot more subdued than they ought to be in some cases because I'm like, well, what about this? And so when it comes to hate, like, I think if we loved the way that Jesus had called us to and the way that Jesus loved and we loved in our culture, we would be less open to an accusation of hate. So there are some things that I don't think we've done well over time. And there are parts of the church that just embrace hate, which as I say that, I'm like, maybe they're not parts of the church, but we all screw things up, you know, that just embrace hate. But yeah, we're, we are in that. I'm going to use this um, sign uh, and I'm a little hesitant to do this, uh, but have you seen this, everybody's seen this sign, right? Uh, you may have it in your yard, you know, because, but this is the problem is it can be interpreted in so many different ways. But I've heard it referred to as the secular, secular creed, and they're just, we had some neighbors move in, um, this is probably a couple years ago now, and for a year they had that sign in their front yard. I'm like, I don't think you really want to talk about this stuff. <laughs> you just kind of want to like, and so let me go through just a few of those, and one is no human is illegal. And what I feel like is being communicated, um, I'm like, that's right, no human is illegal. Like, all humans are made in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth, and Christ died on the cross for all humans. That's absolutely right. But I feel like what's being communicated is, if you believe in immigration policy at all, then you hate immigrants. That's what I feel like I'm being accused of, because I think, but what I want to ask people is, do you think we should just have open borders? Because no country has open borders. And I don't understand immigration policy, but I'm pretty confident that 99% of the people that put the sign in the yard don't understand immigration policy either. And I'm sure it needs to be changed. But like, this is what I feel like is being projected. Um, and, it, and so I feel like I'm being falsely accused of uh, hate. Women's rights, are, I'm going to skip love and love is love for just a minute. Women's rights are human rights, which is absolutely true, you know. Um, but, it, but what it comes across is a theologically conservative church that our understanding of Scripture is that men and women are equal in value and God loves all of us and, you know, male and female, he created in the image of God, he created them. But that there are some different functions, which I think is, like, obvious that we're made differently and probably for some different things and roles. And so we do believe that the Bible unapologetic, but unapologetically says that when you get married, a husband has a, a responsibility to lead his family, and he'll be accountable for God before that. He has a different role in that and should play out that role, and so we believe that. But, and, and we think that plays itself out in the church. You know, um, that's a whole lot. You should take the membership class. We can talk about this forever if you want to. Um, we just don't have female elders at our church. Every other position, we like thank God for our women leaders. You know, I'd love to have women elders. I just don't think that's what the Bible tells us to do. And so that's what we do. But then, and, and this summer, I read a book by a pastor who feels differently about that and really doesn't, who was like, if you don't agree with this, you're a misogynist. And I'm like, I don't think I'm a misogynist, you know, or hate women or don't think women have rights. But it's what gets projected through things. Science is real. This one, like, yes, science is real. But what, what it feels like is if you believe that there's a natural realm and then there's a supernatural realm, and science is, is perfect for the natural realm, and it works because God made the natural realm, and God's orderly, and so he made it orderly, and so we can study it, which if you go back through the history of science is why we have science. But there is a supernatural realm that science doesn't really work in because it's supernatural. And I think the problem occurs on the margins, which we don't know where they are, you know, so the God and the gaps thing. I totally get that. 
but it gets projected as, you know, if you think there's a supernatural realm, then you're an idiot. That's how it feels like um, we're being falsely accused. And love and love generally refers to LGBTQIA, you know, plus, which I can't even keep track of what all the letters mean at this point, because you know, it changes a lot. It changes a lot. Um, but it comes, it's in our culture. It's, it's if you don't just respect people's right to do what they want and live how they want, which is why I say God put the tree in the middle of the garden, because God respects our right to do whatever we want to, just that there's going to be consequences to that. But we're in a moment where if you don't, where you don't just respect it, but you celebrate it, um, then you hate people. And I, I, so I feel like that's an accusation that is not, a, you know, the right accusation. And um, recently, there was a woman on the local NCFC professional soccer team. A couple weeks ago, they had a game where they, wrote, they, they had uniforms for Pride Month. And she said, it just goes against my beliefs to, to celebrate. And so I'm not going to play in that game. And like, God bless her courage. And, but the response to it is fascinating. There were some Tampa Bay um, Rays professional baseball players that did the same thing a few months ago. And so it just feels like you're being accused. Now, let me say this. From the other side, I've had people say, if you, don't, if you didn't vote for Trump, you are not a Christian. And like, don't get me started. You know, like, holy cow. And, and it's part of our problem is identifying our faith with, the, like, tying ourselves to religious party um, either way. I just, I don't like being told that I hate people because I don't hate people, you know? Paul was falsely accused. We're going to be too. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be stereotyped. I think Paul would say, hey, relax. Okay? Relax. This second one, don't take it personally. I don't think Paul did. So one of these scenes when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul said, hey, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He was like, it's about time. And these people, he's like, yeah, let's go. Let's have a conversation. Um, in the scene that I read from, Festus, you know, after Paul, really after he declares Jesus rose from the dead is when Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Like, you are crazy. And Paul's like, nah, I'm not Festus. But he says, most excellent Festus. Like, he just keeps his calm about it because he hasn't taken it personally. He said, I'm speaking true and rational words. And Paul knows a few things, right? He knows that his identity doesn't rest on whether or not he wins an argument or what anybody thinks about him. And so that lets him keep it, like, not make it personal because... Um, the weight, like what other people think about him doesn't carry anywhere near as much weight as what God thinks about him. And he's crystal clear on what God thinks about him because of the gospel. One of the earliest verses I remember being convicted by when I became a Christian as a teenager was this from John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, which is canceled in that culture for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God and my um, translation the NIV at, at that time said they love praise from men more than they love praise from God and I thought ooh, I like praise from men quite a bit like that's probably a problem for me and it's one of those things where it's humbling to like think so many years later that's still pretty much a problem for me <laughs> like Paul Love the praise from God more than the praise from men. I'm 50-50 on that. You know, like, I like some good praise. 
Like on a good day, I'm probably 80-20. On a bad day, I might be 20-80, you know? Uh, but I care way too much what people think about me. Do you? Um, and so that's part of, like, where the ability to not take it personally comes from is, um, is valuing what God, God's words more than the words of others. And this is the other thing that Paul knew. Paul's res- that people's response to what you say often has nothing to do with you or what you said or what you believe, but about what they have to gain or to lose. And so in these scenes, when you read through them, Festus and Felix, it's obvious, have political ambitions. And so they are, it says a couple times, they did this to please the Jews, or they were hoping that Paul would bribe them. Like he is just a pawn in their situation to see what they can gain from it. And I feel like so many times you were a pawn in the formation of somebody else's identity. And so even for the Christian faith, in our culture, 50 years ago, 30 years ago maybe, there was social capital to be gained from being a part of a church because it was an expectation. Now there's a cost to being a part. You're like scared to tell people you went to church on Sunday, aren't you? Like a little bit? Because you don't know how they're going to respond? And so even for us, it plays plays itself out like that. Um, And so, but it goes the other way too. And if people can make you wrong, so that they can be more right or righteous, they'll do it. That's what the yard sign comes across to me is like a virtue signaling thing. Look at me. Um, I believe all these things, and I'm right. Uh, now, and don't get sanctimonious about that because we do the same thing to people all the time <laughs> because we're all trying to, we all, like, as much as we trust in the righteousness of Christ, there's still a part of us that is self-righteous and is always trying to figure out to get a leg up. So don't take, what was that one? Don't take it personally. Don't be intimidated. Here's the third one. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So this is early, and there's like a mob, and he's like, listen, uh, he's just not, he doesn't, he's not trying to escape the situation, he's confronted it. So he's like, I'm a Jew, I'm from Tarsus and Cilicia, that's a big time city, just let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. He hits the thing um, head on. There's a couple times where he's so calm in this. At one point, the tribune in Jerusalem has arrested him, and they're about to beat him. And Paul's like, hey, can I ask you a question before you do that? And the guy's like, whatever. And uh, he's like, is it legal to, to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't been convicted of anything? And, and it's not. And the guy's like, uh, are you a Roman citizen? Like, Paul's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And the guy's like, oh, crap, because he's about to screw everything up, you know. But Paul just holds that card and plays it at just the right time. Another time, there's like a debate between the Jewish people are like all over him, but he knows there's Pharisees and Sadducees, which are two different types of Jewish beliefs. And the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection at all. And it's, I don't know how you're Jewish and not believe in a resurrection, but I don't know enough about it. And the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. So Paul sees this thing's going sideways, and he like raises his hand and says, I'm only here because of my belief in the resurrection. And so then it pits those two against each other, and all of a sudden they don't care about Paul. Like he just... It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know? And, and the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's right, we're with Paul. You guys stink. And it just changes the whole thing because he's not intimidated. Like, he totally gets what's going on. In this scene that I read on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice. Um, Agrippa is the king of the Jews. Bernice is his sister with whom he has a weird relationship. Came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city, Roman, Jewish, all of them. 
It's like going to Congress and testifying, you know, saying you have, you have lunch in downtown Raleigh with Roy and Marianne or whoever the mayor is now, and Paul is unfazed by all of it. Um, like, I'd be freaking out. I have an imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here? But he's not. What happens to you when you feel like you're trying to speak truth to power? And when are you speaking truth to power? And let me, let me ask this question and seek an answer. Who defines truth right now in our culture? Yeah, social media does a lot. Um, the, the, it, and it's the likes and follows. I mean, biblically, it's the crowd. When you see the crowd in the Bible... I think I preached a sermon about the crowd in a Christmas thing a couple, or Easter a couple years ago, like as a character, the crowd. And so the, the loudest voice, the most charismatic voice, the latest voice, because it seems like voices pop up and then like four months later, they're gone completely, you know. Who else defines truth in our culture? Yeah, people with status. Um, Hollywood defines truth for us in ways that if we knew, we would probably never show our kids any movies, you know, because they're all communicating messages. Um, the media, though we don't trust it, defines truth um, in a lot of ways. U universities define truth. Scientists define truth. For us, uh, politicians define truth. Ultimately, God defines truth. That was the right answer. But, um, but all those other answers are like the right answers right now. And so we're speaking truth to power, it feels like, all the time. And you're just not, you're not even sure when you're doing it or what truth you're speaking to because truth right now is up for grabs um, in our culture. And I think that's intimidating. Um, I remember... Uh, I remember years ago when I was, I was in grad school at Ohio State and, um, and, and God was really working, working me, <laughs> a lot of things. It was like a, like a lot of repentance in my life and driving home from something through campus one night. Ohio State's like one of the biggest universities in the country and maybe in the world and, th and driving through these big buildings and all these smart people and thinking, God, are your, is your truth more? So your truth is more than all this truth. Like all this truth is subjugated to your truth. And I felt God was like, R-E-L-A-X. Like, Jeff, just relax. I got this. Um, but in the present, it can be hard to do that. The, um, I got a new uh, cardiologist uh, this summer, my old, my old guy retired or moved, and so I had a heart valve replaced 16 years ago next month, and at some point in the next probably five years, it'll have to be replaced again. And so this is a big deal for me, switching cardiologists. But I'm always looking, I am always looking to have a conversation with someone about Jesus because I feel like that's what we're called to do. And so I'm always like leaving breadcrumbs in conversation, see if anybody has any interest in anything other than themselves <laughs> or if they're spiritually like there's something um, going on. But I can get intimidated. Like, you know, I had some midlife crisis moments. I talked about that last week in my sabbatical. And so I can get intimidated by people that got more money 
or more status or more letters behind their name or looks or success or whatever it is. Um, and so my, my cardiologist is like the head of cardiothoracic surgery at Wake Med. I Google stalked him. I normally feel bad about that, but this guy is going to cut me open and replace parts, you know? So I thought, that's okay to try and know something about him. Grew up in Raleigh, went to Princeton and played tennis, which those things together don't really add up well for me, um, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but he was just not what I, he was, he's awesome. If you need a cardiologist, let me know. I'll introduce you to Dr. Williams. But in the conversation, not knowing anything, like I just dropped some breadcrumbs and he picked him up. And so we went down that road of like, like I was in grad school for to get a master's in healthcare administration. We talked a little healthcare, but then we ended up talking church and he kind of gets some things I didn't expect him to and goes to a church in town, but I don't know what a lot of churches believe. So I ended up getting to the point in the conversation of like, you know, it's because the track led me to being a pastor, which what's really helpful for me is Paul saying, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, um, my preaching is in vain and so is your faith. To declare to him, this is the center of the whole thing. If your church doesn't preach that this is the center of the whole thing, the resurrection of Jesus, then your church is getting it wrong. And to like passively, aggressively say that to him, you know, in the middle of this conversation, just see where it went. But in Paul's like Paul's defense, when he says that, Festus is like, you're crazy, because that's the crazy part, right? A guy rose from the dead. That's the anti-science part. A guy rose from the dead. That's the center of it. Um, it, it emanates out from there in so many ways. Uh, and so I, I, had a good, I had a good moment, you know? Uh, and and for, for Paul, part of the reason that I think he's effective in these situations is because of last week, because following Jesus is hard and requires you to sacrifice some things. And part of it is he gave up so much for what he believed, and people see that. He was, Paul was a big deal in line for lots of worldly success, that when he was persecuting Christians, the high priest was the one that was giving him the orders to go persecute the Christians. It's 20 years earlier. Imagine where he would have been going down that line 20 years later. Now he's defending himself before the high priest, but they know who he is and who he was and who he could have been, but he gave all of it up to follow Christ's call. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the evidence of things that are unseen. At one point I thought, like, our lives have to be evidence of something that's unseen. The sacrifices that you make to follow Christ is evidence that there's something more than just what we see in this world. And when people see that, if they perceive that you're not crazy, then they start thinking, oh, maybe there's something to that, that they would do that. The hard things from last week are what gave Paul his opportunity um, in this defense. So don't be intimidated. Um, don't apologize for the things that God says to be true. Um, I, got, I got two more. Don't overcomplicate your defense. Um, Paul's defense, pretty consistently, is Jesus rose from the dead, and he changed my life. And that's about it. The part that we missed in his defense in, earlier was, I was persecuting these Christians just like you were persecuting me because I thought they were crazy and dangerous, just like you think I'm crazy and dangerous. And then Jesus showed up while I was going to persecute more Christians blinded me with a light from heaven, and I was like, ah, who, what are you, who is this? Who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Paul had to be like, oh, shoot. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> I guess you want me to stop that. Jesus like, more than that, <laughs> like you're going to the other side. And it changed everything about his life. 
And from then forward, he counted everything about his life as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and following Christ and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Um, and that's where Festus tells him, you're crazy. Uh, you're crazy. Paul, at one point in this, and this is the line I regret missing, he said, there's a line in that defense where he says, why should it surprise any of you that God raises the dead? This is one of my favorite lines. Why should it surprise anybody that God raised the dead? He's God! This is not surprising. You think I'm crazy. I think you're crazy for not believing that God could raise the dead because he's God and he can raise the dead. Like, it's a big deal, but in some ways it's not because he's God. Uh, and it's, it's enough. It's enough. I say, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, we should be ready to answer all the questions, but, and he changed my life. Honestly, I thought about that. That's what I did with the cardiologist. I said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and I was on this path, but God took me on this path and changed everything about my life. Um, oh, shoot. I have a quote from Luther that I forgot. Dang it. Luther has a great quote about um, his fight against the Pope. And he, what he basically says is, you know what? I, in my defense, I just kind of preached the word of God. And then I went and drank beer with my friends and relaxed because God's word is going to get that stuff done. So, man, uh, I'll read it at the beginning of next week. No, I won't. Uh, but um, don't overcomplicate. We don't need to overcomplicate it because it's God's the one that's got to do it. Paul said, I planted the word, Apollos watered it. God caused the growth, his problem. And last one, don't, under don't underestimate what God is capable of. At one point in this, these scenes, in these few chapters, God comes to Paul and says, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Paul knows he is playing with house money. Like God knows what he's doing. And he believed it, you know, and he knew it. And God affirmed it. You forget those things after a little while, but then God affirms it again. And, and he knew it. And so at the end of this, this scene where, it says, where he says, For the king knows about these things. This is taking your shot, man. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for it hasn't been done in a corner. Like, everybody knows about Jesus. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. This is like a sales guy saying, here's the pen. You know? Go ahead and sign it. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. He tries to convert them right there. Um, I started using this because I like it so much. About a year and a half ago, I heard a guy say that if you hold a watermelon under, you hold a watermelon underwater for as long as you want to, as soon as you let go of it, the watermelon's coming back up out of the water. Depending on how big the watermelon is, you better get out of the way because it's going to punch you right in the face. And he was saying that about truth in our culture. Like, you can suppress truth as long as you want to, but, but eventually it's going to come around. And as, as a church, as Christians, we don't need to sit there wagging our fingers saying, I told you so. You should have listened to me, you know. We need to be like, oh, really? I think Jesus had something to say about that. I might have told you about it before. You don't say that part, you know. Uh, but, like, let me tell you what, what Jesus said about that. And this summer on sabbatical, so many times I thought, there's the watermelon coming back up. Dakota Fanning, who was the actress in Fifty Shades of Grey, which when that came out, remember that? That was a big deal. Like, we had the woman at Facebook page, people saying, don't go see that. <laughs> uh, 
This is not going to be helpful. She said this summer, if, um, if I had known, like, what they were going to make me do in that movie, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. And I take that with a grain of salt because she probably had a pretty good idea, and she admitted that that movie was a rocket ship for her career, but she publicly admitted that was not a great thing. Um, the, uh, I mentioned this a time or two, there was a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League who swam for the team for three years as a man, transitioned, and then got on the women's team. Liam Thomas, and now Leah Thomas. And um, I have a ton of, of sympathy for someone who experiences gender dysmorphia, but I also have a ton of sympathy for the women that he, she was swimming against. And there was a mind-blowing story, because the Ivy League's like, yep, she can swim, he can swim against the rest of the women and crushed them. And the NCAAs are like, that's fine, crushed everybody. This summer, FINA, which is some international swimming association, I said this to a few people, that ain't happening in the Olympics. The rest of the world's going to be like, do whatever you want, USA. We're not doing that. And they said, hey, we'll find a different category. We'll figure it out. But someone who's had testosterone in their body for 20 years is not going to swim against um, women in the Olympics. Like watermelon coming back up because there's just something that doesn't work about that. I use this article before I left. There was an article in a, in a site called Vice, which I don't read a lot, but it is what, you, what it sounds like. And, but the, what the article was like, what, it was titled, What is Radical Monogamy? And instantly I'm like, that's Christian marriage, <laughs> you know? And that's what the article was. But it's coming from a same-sex standpoint, you know, so we're, some things we disagree on. But it's like, what if you're just supposed to stay with one person and even though, like, you make each other mad and you have hard times, you're supposed to, like, struggle through those times together and humble yourself and realize where you're supposed to change and just stick it out. I'm like, come on, you know? Like, that's it. And so that's it. Yep, that's a good idea. It was right there in the Bible, right in the beginning, you know? Uh, there's an article this summer about the important, you can choose your family. That's big, you choose your family but about, like, you can't escape the reality that you're made for a biological family. And there's some unbelievable redemptive stories that you guys are participating in and experienced, and it's true. But, like, you can't escape the reality of what we're made for. There's some elections that happened this summer where people that defunded the police were de-elected um, because it turns out you need police if there are bad people around. And there's police reform that needs to happen, but watermelons were coming back up all around. You know, don't underestimate what God is capable of. Um, and it's not about right or being, winning an argument, being right or winning an argument. If, you, if it is about being right, to the extent that it's about being right or winning an argument, you have violated the don't take it personally principle. Um, it's about worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth and like seeking God's kingdom ab above all other things. Uh, let me end by just like last week was about following Jesus is hard. You should follow him in any way. Worship is the key to that. And you see that play itself out in this scene because it matters that Paul gave up everything. And what you sacrifice in the kingdom of this world for the sake of the kingdom of God tells people how valuable the kingdom of God is because you can't see it in the same way you can see the kingdom of this world. And then the things that Paul went through made him, and this is true about the church and it's what's good about being in the margins, is we're increasingly not a threat because we don't have power. 
And that's so helpful. And Paul wasn't a threat because he had no power in these scenes. Agrippa was not threatened by Paul. Festus wasn't threatened by Paul. And so he could say those things that he, that he would have said differently if he was the one with the power, the worldly power in the scene. Um, and, and the sacrifice mattered because they, like, they know who this guy could have been, but he changed it all because of the reality of Jesus in his life. And so just some of the things that are hard for you about following Jesus that I talked about last week, and it's about relationships, and it's about, like, marriage is hard and, and sticking that out, and it's about um, even, like, you, want, you go to church on Sundays? Like, you give up your, your one free morning a week, uh, just the things that are, are in worship. It's about, like, giving financially, and throughout Scripture, God calls us to give of the first fruits, 10% of the first fruits of what we make, and he does that. To, like as an acknowledgement that it's all a gift from God, that even our ability to make money came from God, and also because God, money is the thing that challenges God the, the most to be our God. And so it's a preemptive strike against that. But when people find out you give a bunch of money to the church, they're like, wait a second. But it, it validates. It's, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It validates the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And Paul said something last week that I've cited where he, where he said, um, I, I hold my life as of no account. Like, I don't value my life, which his life is valuable enough that Jesus died on the cross for it, and he knows that, but he found something so much more valuable in Christ. And again, worship is the key to that. That Christ is the thing that we value um, above, above all. And so we'll keep talking about this because I can't stop talking about it because it's where we are right now. It's why we have the cultural engagement forums is so we can just start thinking about how do we navigate the gray zone and the new reality that we're moving into as the church and how do we appreciate like some of the benefits of where we are and what it looks like to have these um, conversations. We're going to take communion as, um, as the band comes back up and and we, we've been doing this for the past few years. Like, we've been slowly, since we started the church, moving to doing communion more and more. We're like, we need to do this every week because it is a recognition of how valuable Christ is and, um, and like, how quickly we can forget the gospel and how we need to remember. And so as we do this, we're going to, as Christ said, it's his body that's been broken for us and his blood that's been poured out for us and do this in remembrance of me, and we do this in remembrance of him. If you're new, someone pointed this out to, to John and I this week. If you're new, um, we, we don't, there's not, a, you can come up whenever you want to. Everyone, we said that, like, when we started doing this after post-COVID this way, and everybody just kind of comes up at once, and that's fine. Or you can wait. Um, it's not by row. Uh, you do it however you want to. When I went to Catholic church, one of my favorite things about sabbatical was going to different churches. And I went to mass three times because I was in a monastery. And they don't, they don't, they've got more strict rules about um, communion. So I, so I wasn't supposed to take communion because I'm not Catholic, but they said, you can come up and like, if you're not Catholic or you're not ready to take communion, which is like, you're in a bad way, you can cross your whatever and we'll give you a blessing instead. So like I had the nervous, I always say church is the scariest place to go to if you haven't been to church before. And that was my scary church moment or one of them. Because I was like, oh, I don't want to like people to think there's something wrong with me if I do that. But if this guy's going to give me a blessing, I want it. Like, I'll take all the blessings that I can get. And so I went up and did it anyway. So don't be scared. But we're not going to do that either, okay? No, I'm not offering out blessings from Father Jeff today. Uh, but just in the, in the next few moments, when you're ready, 
um, we would love for you to come up, come up and take communion if you've recognized Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Man, if you haven't, um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and, and bow your head, and I'm going to pray for us for just a second. But if you haven't recognized that yet, um, the gospel is not that we have done enough that God will approve of us. That's, so many people think that's what church is, is. I do some good stuff for God. If I have enough good stuff on the list, you know, God, Santa will bring me presents. That's not it. It's that we never could have done it enough. There's not enough. That sin goes so deep in our hearts that we can't even fathom it. One person said, you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that is what you keep sinking into in the gospel is the love of Christ that you don't deserve, but he gave to you freely, and that's communion. If you've never accepted that reality, there is a moment where you say, and maybe you don't even know when it happened, but you're like, yes, I believe that's true, where you become a Christian. And when you do that, then you're a baby Christian. You're about to make a mess of things, and you need the church to disciple you into the Christian faith, and so that's what we're here for. You should get baptized. But if, if you have never done that before, I invite you this morning to surrender yourself to Christ and the truth of who he is and what he's done for you. Lord, thanks for Paul in these scenes. We live in a time that seems to us crazy, but it doesn't seem crazy to you. It's probably happened like 17 times since um, Jesus rose from the dead. You know exactly what's going on. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to relax, not in our own competence, but in the sovereignty of God and that you are big, that you are in control, and that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.